right. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're excited to dive in. God's been using this in my own devotional life to really put a fresh fire in my heart for Jesus. And before we jump in, thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone that served, for everyone that invited someone, for all the hard work to make our Easter service an incredible success. Wasn't it awesome last week? Wow, you're enthusiastic, man. I, I thought it was awesome. We uh, served over a thousand people breakfast. We had our biggest service ever, which was really encouraging. Over 1,400 people here, and all kinds of eggs were found by happy children. Our actors and actresses, they just took us to town, didn't they? Man, that was incredible, and definitely our greatest response of, of salvation to people committing their lives to Christ, people streaming to the front. So we're celebrating what God is doing. Thank you for being such an inviting church. Thank you for being such a serving church. It's awesome, awesome weekend. I'm also excited this Thursday, as you know, God's doing a great work of unity in this city. And so we're going to join with friends from Journey Church, from Foothills, from The Rock, from a bunch of other churches on Thursday night at the Journey Auditorium. Stephen and the band are going to lead some of the worship on Thursday at 6.30. So I want to encourage you to jump in. We've actually canceled our encounter service this week for that purpose. So we could just jump into what God's doing in our city as a whole. So join with us then. So we take very seriously the discussions we have on Sunday morning. And we've been feeling led to dive in and preach through the book of Ephesians. And I want to talk to you for a moment about the city of Ephesus because what God did in the city of Ephesus has been really significant to me. Many people ask how Stephanie and I got together and how our relationship blossomed into the budding love that it is today. And I want to take you into that. Everyone can start by going, oh. And it started really in Ephesus. And not many people can say that, right? We, we fell in love on a trip to Turkey. We had been in the School of Transformation, or the equivalent in our church in Texas right after college. We both went through this school. And we weren't supposed to date in the actual class portion of the school. And so the Holy Spirit was our seating arrangement, uh, arranger on our flight, on our outreach to Turkey. Her last name was Herman, mine was Herber, and so we were seated alphabetically in order on the plane, on the flight to Turkey, and it was one of those two, five, two seating configurations, and we had the two seats by ourselves. And, uh, you know, it's hard to not get to know someone when you have nine hours on a flight. And so we, were, we just got to, got to swap stories and hear about our lives, and I think for the first time, I started thinking, man, this girl's amazing. She had liked me for months beforehand, but um, <laughs> yeah, so we get, we get to Turkey, and we land in a city called Eskashe here, a city of about half a million people, hadn't had a church there in 500 years, a stronghold of, of radical Islam. And no known believers in the city. And as we go in, God miraculously connects us to a group of young people. And this group was a young man named Erkan. And we visited him often going to the restaurant that his family owned and that he worked at. One day on a walk home, Erkan 
explained that he was in pain, and we stopped and prayed for him, and immediately the power of God touched him. Erkan goes, you're a magician, aren't you? I said, no, we're not a magician, but Jesus is all-powerful. He's living and real, and he's who we've been telling you about. And that day, Erkan gave his life to Jesus, one of the first known believers in that city in years. And we were seeing the birth of the early church. Well, we ended up having to flee the city because Stephanie got arrested for sharing the gospel there. My wife's a stud. I know that. Yeah. She's bad. And um, we, we had to flee the city, but Erkan decided to go with us. And we, we went on the seven churches tour for a couple of days at the end of our month's stay in Turkey. And the seven churches tour was a journey in which you visited the seven churches that are listed in the book of Revelation, the churches that Jesus addresses in the final book in the Bible. The greatest uh, church that we visited was the church of Ephesus, and the ruins were amazing. Ephesus was a city founded in 550 AD. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I think we have some of the, the pictures of the ruins there. If you show that picture, that amphitheater, in Ephesus is one of the greatest amphitheaters of antiquity. And down on the floor of the amphitheater, Paul actually addressed the city of Ephesus. So it was absolutely amazing to be standing there with Stephanie, my future wife, on one side, and Erkan, the hope of a new Turkish church, on the other side. The book of Ephesians in, in chapter 1, verse 1, starts this way. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And that word apostle is a Greek word, and it it's two words combined together, apo, which is away from, and stello, which is to be sent. And so the apostle meant a a sent one to a destination that's far away. And, And so Paul was sent into new places to establish the kingdom of God. And this word, at the time when Jesus used it, wouldn't have been a foreign concept to the people of his time because it was actually used by the Romans, a a Latin word, actually. And in the Roman culture, the Romans were always going and conquering new cities. And then the Roman emperor would send an apostle, an emissary from the government, and his whole job was to land in an area that had been conquered by Rome, and he was to enculturate the people in, in, in the language of Rome, in the mores of Rome, in the dress of Rome, in order to transform that area into a Roman colony. He was a transformation agent. So when Jesus called men and said, I'm going to make you apostles, they would have already known, we're going to be sent into a new area to transform the culture. Now, Paul was an apostle sent into Ephesus. And what he and his friends did transform that, transformed that city and birthed one of the most powerful churches of the New Testament. And so it was so significant for us to be standing in Ephesus, to be in what is modern-day Turkey, believing for God to transform a city. Now, immediately when we start studying this book as all people's church, it's very significant because we're called to be an apostolic people. We have an apostolic bent as a church. Uh, We have a sent one bent. We have a a, a bent to transform cultures. You guys know we didn't just come from another church who had a disagreement on the color of the carpet in the auditorium. 
Uh, we're just lucky to even have carpet in here. We, we came from a state far away where God was sending us to establish a new work. And now we don't just establish this work here in San Diego, but we have people that are always going all over the world. Currently, I, we have missionaries in Brazil, Thailand, Japan, UAE, and somewhere else that I can't think of right now. But we're constantly sending people into new areas, and we're going to send more and more. Why? Because God has called us. Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. This isn't our idea. This is what God has spoken to our hearts, and it's a great honor to be a part of this work. So while I'm in Ephesus, I was reminded of how the book, how how the church in Ephesus started. If you want to flip over with me to Acts chapter 19, we see the story about how this church was started in this city. It says this in verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, just think about Paul, this great apostle showing up in Ephesus. We were sent once into this same country. Maybe you have the picture, David, of when Stephanie and I were doing our great work. Yeah, there we are, right there. I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, man, Robert hasn't aged a bit in these, <laughs> in these 13 years. I know some, uh, some, some more intellectual ones of you are thinking, man, their, their cultural adaptation is brilliant. We just, no one knew that we were Americans uh, there. That's, that's incredible. You can take that picture down. Don't want to overwhelm you with our missiology tactics. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We have not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied, verse 4. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 of them in all. Now, this story was significant to me at this time because, you see, for, for many of us, probably some of you in this room, we've grown up in church, but we didn't understand the power of the Holy Spirit. So I had repented of my sins. I understood that Jesus died on the cross to cleanse me, to make me new. But I never knew that the Holy Spirit wants to come on us and empower us. Acts 1.8 says, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is what happens to these disciples. They had repented, turned from their sins, but now Paul's saying, have you received the power of the Holy Spirit? They said, no. He places his hands on them, and what happens? The power of God comes on them, and it's manifested in the gift of tongues, in the gift of prophecy. Now watch the result of the power of the Holy Spirit. Look down to verse 11. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. When the power of the Holy Spirit comes in, it results in miracles, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them There was some power on that brother right there. We want that kind of power to see transformation. Now, look at what else happened in in verse 18. It says this, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 
drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord sped widely and grew in power. When the power of God was poured out, it didn't just result in some nice church meetings. It wasn't just some fun services to come to. No, people started being convicted of their sin. They realized they had been following false religions. They realized that they were in all kinds of things that were not pleasing to the Lord. So what did they do? They had a big bonfire. Let's get rid of this stuff. They repented in turn. And what we know historically is from 52 AD to 92 AD was a 40-year revival in the city of Ephesus. Incredible. It affected generations. That's significant to us because that's what we're believing for in San Diego. We're crying out for the release of God's power, but not just that, the transformation of society. So we want to study this book to understand what was going on. Something else that was very significant for me about the city of Ephesus is the method in which Paul planted his church. When we were called to plant All People's Church in San Diego, we knew we wanted to impact the poor. So Steph and I thought we'd do the same thing we had done in Texas. In Texas, we had moved into the inner city and seen God do amazing things in connecting us with very broken people. We intended to move right onto Fairmount, right by Rosa Parks in City Heights, if you're familiar with that area. As we went, no doors opened up for us to rent a place there. I mean, we could not find a place to move our family to. And I was so frustrated. I'm thinking, God, we've, we've sold our home. We've given up everything to move to this place. And no, no way is being made for us. I remember being exasperated, calling my pastor, Jimmy, and saying, what is going on? He said, Robert, sometimes when we're not getting an answer, it's because we're asking the wrong question. Sometimes when we're not getting an answer, it's because we're asking the wrong question. So I began to say, God, am I asking the wrong question? Am I wanting to start the church with the wrong target group of people? Immediately God brought to mind Acts 19. If you look in this verse, starting in verse 8, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, where that would be Christians. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, where the NASB would say the school of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God highlighted Acts 19. We saw the word school of Tyrannus and realized, you know what, God is wanting to refocus this on students. Amazingly, a house opened up right by state campus, walking walking distance from state campus. We launched there. God started bringing students to Christ. Uh, very rapidly, different students committing their life to walk with Jesus. And from there, the city started growing. Actually, next week, you're going to have the opportunity to hear from one of our founding members, one of the first students that was really radically transformed by this church. His name is Russell Allen. I think we have a picture of Russell. There he is, good-looking fella. He uh, was the captain of the state football team. We moved in next door. We'll tell you more of the story next week. But this week, he's been all over national news as he went from state to the Jacksonville Jaguars, had a successful career as a professional athlete, spoke boldly for Jesus in his tenure there, but had an unusual accident that ended his career prematurely. But God has used it and given him an opportunity to proclaim 
the goodness of the Lord and to share his testimony. So next week, I encourage you, he, I'm going to be interviewing him as a portion of the, of the message. I want to encourage you, if you know an athlete, it would be a great time to bring them. If you know someone that's into sports, it would be a great time to bring them. It's going to be a great time hearing what God's doing in his life. I don't want to give away too much of the story, but he does live in the end. Uh, <laughs> And uh, he's actually sitting right back there. So Ephesus and the model of Ephesus, they went and planted at a school. And all of a sudden, all of Asia hears. This book has tremendous significance to us because it's very similar to what God's doing in our midst. So let's jump in to this book. And let's start in verse 2 here where it says this, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that the beginning of the book, the first thing the Apostle Paul wants us to know is God's given you grace. What is grace? A simple definition is unmerited favor from God manifesting in salvation for sinners. Unmerited favor from God manifesting in salvation for sinners. It's by grace that you've been saved. It's not by your works. If you're wondering how to get to God, it's not by being a good person. It's by understanding that you needed a Savior, that Jesus died on the cross, and he paid a debt that you could never pay to give you a new life in him. He rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death, and that is grace. But I want to say that often we stop there as a church, and that's really entry-level grace. But another great definition of grace is empowerment from heaven to do the will and work of God. I had a great mentor who would talk to me about how grace isn't just being forgiven for sins, but grace is like when you're in those video games, you know, and I'm from the video game generation. I had that first Atari, right? I played Pong, and then I I fought to beat, you know, Super Mario Brothers, and then I was even Little Joe and Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Somebody give me a witness up here. There's... There's a time in a video game, at least in old school video games, before, you know, we were in virtual reality, where your little power source was growing low, where you'd see on the bottom right-hand corner of the screen that your life was getting low, and what did you have to do? You had to go and get power bars. You had to go around, you know, and all of a sudden you'd be built back up. That's what grace is like. You're running in the journey of life. You're starting to feel weary. You don't know if you can make it, and all of a sudden you step into the grace of God. And you're built up, and your inner man is full of strength. That is what God wants to do. He's saying, there is grace for you. So many of us, when we think about approaching God, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's worry. And so Paul the Apostle is saying, no, the first thing I want you to know is there's grace for you. And then there's peace. We see a chaotic world around us. So many are fearful And the Apostle Paul is saying, when you come to the Father, there is peace. He wants you to live this life from a place of rest. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Verse 3 says this, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about what God has done, doesn't it make you just want to praise him? You just say praise. Let's just take a praise break. Man, I just want to praise God for what he's done Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Genesis chapter 1, God creates man and woman. 
the first thing he does in 1 verse 28 is it says God bless them. He's not waiting for you to be pretty. He's not waiting for you to do something great. You came out of the womb. You were just a slimy, red, screaming little piece of baby. And he just said, I bless that. God blessed us before we did anything for him. He blessed us in the spiritual realms. One commentator says this. He says that that word, he has blessed us, is an aorist tense. It's a past tense, meaning that he has already given us all the blessings in the, in the heavenly realms. It's not something you're reaching for. It's not something you're striving for. You're not hoping for victory someday. We go forth from victory. He has already given you every blessing in Christ. We move forward from a place of victory. Let's look at that next scripture. It says this, for he chose us for he chose us several weeks ago i was in a pretty emotionally low place i was just tired worn out from a lot of hard work just drained i, I couldn't even really explain have you ever had one of those times you can't even explain why you're really down you just feel down sitting on the back porch of a friend's house and i had the book of ephesians opened on my lap just slowly chewing on the word of God. I know when I'm down, I know what I need to do is hear what God thinks about me. I don't know what you do when you're down. But I know that I need to get the truth washing over me. So I'm just sitting down there chewing on the word, saying, God, tell me what my reality is. And I get to this phrase, for he chose us. I don't know if you've ever been chosen before. You know, like, you're out on the playground, and you know you're not that good at the sport you're about to play, but someone's made the team captain that, you know, doesn't have a clue what they're doing. They choose you, and you're like, oh, me? <laughs> I should be the last one chosen. <laughs> or may, maybe, you know, maybe you're married in here, and you're like, I can't believe that woman chose me. Like, I know me. I'm a bozo. And she, <laughs> she chose me. And that's what the Bible is saying, that he chose us. For some reason, out of the billions of people on this planet, God saw this quirky guy living in San Diego and says, I choose him. I choose him. Before the creation of the world, like before, before the mountains were made, before the sun was made, you know, it wasn't just like you came out of this primordial ooze and God said, oh, that was a pretty one. That guy's pretty ugly. Let's not, you know. No, God was thinking about you before he created the world. You were in his mind. You were in his heart. Psalm 139 says that he was watching your unformed being in your mother's womb. You're not an accident. He chose you. He wanted you. You're chosen. And just for a minute, like the veil that's on my mind was lifted. And I just started crying going, wow, you've chosen me. I can't believe it. I'm such a punk. And he, he chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So many of us just have this, you know, repeating 
phrase of, I'm a loser. I'm a mess up. I'll never be enough. And, and God is saying, no, I've chosen you. And in my sight, you're holy. And in my sight, you're blameless. In my sight, you are valuable. For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then it says this, in love. In love. Do you know the Father loves you? The Father, I, I love to watch people in love. They are so goofy. You know, they're just, you're like, please, this is disgusting. I, I, I have a lot of young people on my staff. Every time they get engaged, I can just write off the next five months. I'm like, are you listening to me? No. You know, oh, oh my little, you know, they're just stare. I just did a wedding. The people's wedding that I just did, they didn't hear a word I said. It's like, why did I even prepare for their wedding? They didn't even look at me once. They're just so in love. That's how God is with you. He's just looking at you. Oh, my little buddy. In love. Can you imagine God being in love with you like that? He's just looking, his heart's just going, oh. The Bible actually says in Song of Solomon, he says, turn away from me. Because with one glance of your eyes, you've stolen my heart. God looks at you and you've stolen his heart. He's in love, in love. He's in love with you. If you just get that, I think we'd all grow in confidence. We wouldn't be so worried. We walk in a room, how do I look? Who am I going to talk to? What am I going to do? You know, we'd be like, no, nah, I'm loved. I love watching young women when they know they're love. You know, they go from being all timid to being like, you know, they just sort of float around. <clears throat> and guys, you know, such dorks, all of a sudden they're like, what's up? <laughs> you know, what if we knew that God loved us like that? In love. And then it says he predestined us. This word predestined in the Greek, it's really a, a powerful word because it, it's talking about before, talks about before that the boundary lines are set. So we're so anxious, you know, is God going to bless me? Does God have a, a, a lane for me to run in? Does he have a story for me to be in? And, and the Bible says, no, he's predestined you. These wonderful boundaries are already set. For you. He already knows your story. I love it. And in case you're a real intellectual in here and you're all of a sudden going, oh, Robert's a hyper-Calvinist. Don't box a brother in, is all I got to say. <laughs> no, I, I, I love studying Calvin. I love the Reformation. I love listening to John Piper. I love how he makes much of the glory of God. I love John Wesley on the other side. And I love studying Armenian theology. I, I, I love the, the incomprehensible blend of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. God is bigger than our human boxes. Right? So don't label me. I'm kind of artsy, you know? I don't like labels. In love, he predestined us. And what did he predestine us for? For adoption. You know, the greatest revelation of God in Scripture is that he's a father. And that you're being brought into 
a family. You're being brought into a family. You're not being brought into a religion. You're not being brought into an organization. You're being brought into a family. You're a dearly loved child in a family. Years ago, I read a story of orphans. You know, we all start spiritually as orphans, and I read this heartbreaking story that was going on in Russia. Some of you have heard me tell the story before, but they had this tragic occurrence going on in this orphanage where numerous children were dying of unexplainable deaths. And so they sent researchers, they sent scientists into this orphanage to study what's the cause of these deaths. And as they observed what was going on in this orphanage, they were confused because these children actually had their basic nutrition needs met. They were having sufficient food. There is the right sanitation. They were being changed and given clean clothes and clean sheets to sleep on. The one thing they found lacking in this orphanage was this. You see, there were so many kids that had flooded into this orphanage that all the workers could do was to make sure their basic needs were taken care of, that there was a, a, a safe, warm building for them to be in, that they were fed daily three times, that they were changed whenever they soiled themselves. But what the workers couldn't do is actually hold the children and to give them affection. And as the researchers continued to study, what they came to the conclusion was that these children were actually giving up their will to live because they weren't receiving love. That they had no reason to keep going on because no one cared for them. So these children were literally dying of a broken heart. So sad. You know, love and receiving love is a necessity for humans. Well, a couple years later, I had the opportunity to go to Russia. And I was speaking in a conference in, in central Siberia. And then I was flying back through Moscow. I was there with my father. He came along with me on the journey. And we weren't prepared for the sight we were going to see in the waiting room to get back on that big plane to fly from Moscow to New York. It was a time where adoption was still legal in Russia for Americans. And in that waiting room were scores of first-time parents with their newly adopted kids. And it was actually kind of humorous to watch because a lot of these parents uh, were older. They had never had kids. And so they've shown up with their stroller baby systems, you know, all the hundreds of pounds of equipment for an eight-pound little thing, you know. And they had their bottles and they had the nicest clothes on these kids and all these toys. And the kids are just going berserk. And the parents don't have a clue what to do. But in the center of the room, it was a sight that just took our breath away. There was this little blonde-headed girl, braided pigtails. If you're old school in this room, she looked like Heidi from the movie Heidi. She had her legs wrapped around her newly adopted father's waist and her hands on his shoulder. And this father would just look at her in the eyes and go, I love you. And she'd go, and she'd dive in. To her dad's embrace, and then she'd throw her arms up and fall backwards, knowing that he was going to catch her. Whew, he'd catch her. 
And then she'd rise back up with a huge grin from ear to ear. And he'd look at her right in her eyes and go, I love you. And again, she'd go, Hoo! and dive into his arms and then throw herself back knowing that she'd be caught. My dad and I look at each other, kind of emotional men. We said, excuse me, and just totally started crying as we walked to the opposite corners of the room. It was totally embarrassing. <laughs> Overcome with emotion, seeing this beautiful sight of love through adoption. Well, we got on that plane, and it was utter chaos. Kids screaming, parents yelling at each other, moms and dads, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what you're doing. But I looked back to the row where this little four-year-old girl was, and she was as peacefully asleep, curled up in her father's lap. I just thought, that's what God wants to do with us. You know, we all start as orphans. God wants to just look at us right in the eyes and impart his love for us to draw near and receive his embrace, but then to just throw ourselves back knowing that he's going to catch us. I have a lot of friends that have adopted children, a lot of friends who have adopted children from foreign countries. And one of the trials my friends face is what's called attachment disorder. These children, because they didn't receive the right nurture and care between the ages of six months and three years, they have an unhealthy disorder called detachment. They've, they've never rightfully attached themselves to their primary caregiver, and therefore there's all kinds of issues they develop as they go forth, all kinds of emotional issues, even mental development issues. And so my friends were given tools to foster healthy attachment. And, and here's one of the tools. It's actually a physical, it's actually a physical posture that adoptive parents are taught. And it's this, you know, so often because of a child's pain, they act out and they're hurting. And so they say hurtful things. So the adoptive father is taught to do this, to, to put his legs up, you know, to sit in a chair and to put his legs and prop them up. And then to put his arms in a, in a big circle, and then to place that little newly adopted child dealing with attachment disorder right here in the middle of his lap, almost like she's in a cocoon. And this child will so often start resisting the father. Start saying, I hate you. I don't want you. Go away. I'm leaving. And the father is just taught to absorb those hits, to absorb the criticism, to endure the screaming, the fits of rage, and just to sit there, not flinching, taking the hits in their body, and to just look at this child and to say, I love you. I choose you. I will never leave you. It doesn't matter what you do. This child might be punching them. This child might be cursing at them. But they just look at them and say, it doesn't matter what you do. You won't get rid of me. 
I'm here and I'm not leaving you. And I've chosen you and I want you. And I love having you right here with me. And that child, it might take minutes, it might take hours. In fact, it might take numerous sessions of this. But inevitably, as the father just sits and takes in that pain into his body and sits there patiently, unflinching, steadfastly, and then looking at that child in the eyes, pouring forth verbal affection, eventually that child's hardness breaks. And inevitably that child melts into the father's arms. And will just fall asleep in his warm embrace. You know, I think all of us, to some degree, are orphans. We have attachment disorder with our loving father. But he is wanting to pull you up in his lap. And though you're throwing a temper tantrum, though you're saying, I hate you, I want away, I want to get away. God says, no, I'll never leave you or forsake you. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've removed your transgressions from you. I've loved you with an undying love. You've stolen my heart. You're the pearl of greatest price. You're my child. I adopt you in love. I've chosen you, my son. You, my daughter. Have you received that kind of love from the Father? That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. And that is what God's wanting to do in our hearts in these coming days. Why don't we stand up? Would you close your eyes with me? And while everyone has their eyes closed, if you're just saying, you know, today I need to, I need to know the love of the Father in that way, just put your hand on your heart. No one's looking around. But I want to tell you that so often there are people sitting in churches that feel like orphans. You know it in your head, but you don't feel it in your heart. And today you need the loving arms of God wrapped around you. I don't know what your life has been like. I don't know the pain you've gone through, but God does. And he wants for you to receive that spirit of sonship. For you to know that in love, he predestined you for adoption to sonship. You're no longer an outsider. You're a son. You're a daughter by what Jesus did on the cross and God's arms are outstretched to bring you in. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to pray with me right now and just ask him to come and take over your life. Just say something like this. Say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead. Now place your Holy Spirit in my heart. Thank you for adopting me as your child. And I'll follow you forever.